0: To the cedarville stories podcast today's episode is with dr murdoch who has been at the university for 55 years he has such a heart for racial and ethnic issues and for others to understand that we are one in christ now here's your host mark weinstein longevity commitment to excellence humility servant these are words that describe today's guest on the cedarville stories podcast Joining me this week on the podcast is Dr. Murray Murdoch, Distinguished Professor of History and Government at Cedarville University. With all sincerity and appreciation, it's quite an honor to have you on the podcast, Dr. Murdoch.
1: Thank you, Mark. You're very kind. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I always enjoy being with you and the stories that you share. And that's what I want to do today on Cedarville Stories Podcast is dive into your life at Cedarville. There's no one who has the stories that you have at the university, and we want to dive into that uh, momentarily. But in today's world, uh, your educational background would allow you to teach almost anywhere you want. You earned a master's degree and a doctorate degree from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Why did you, with that educational background, choose to come to teach at Cedarville?
1: Well, my, my dream was always to be involved in Christian education. Okay. Uh, I don't view Cedarville as a job. I view it as a calling and as a ministry, and uh, I knew God called me to Christian education. I didn't know where, but from my undergraduate period on, I went to graduate school to teach in a Christian school and a Christian college. So it was a pretty easy decision to make when I got the opportunity to come to Cedarville. There was one other Christian school where I had an opportunity, but it was far away, and I didn't want to move that far out of the area. And I was excited about Cedarville. I had grown up a regular Baptist and Cedarville was a regular Baptist college. And so I really looked forward to the opportunity to teach in a university or college at that time that was devoted to the liberal arts, even though we didn't call ourselves a liberal arts college, we call ourselves a Baptist college of arts and sciences. The word liberal was not very popular in those days.
0: How did the Lord call you to Cedarville?
1: Well, I went to a Christian high school for my last two years, and it was quite heavily racist. And so when I went to seminary, I went to Baptist Bible Seminary in Johnson City, New York, and started my undergraduate training there, and it was a five-year Bachelor of Theology program. And I had every intention of entering the ministry after that, uh, but I was battling the ministry because of some challenges in my life, and I had had the very unpleasant encounter with racism that disturbed me deeply in a Christian context. And then I um, planned to go into the ministry because I I resisted it at first, and then when when I felt free to say, yes, I'll go into the ministry and pastor, it seemed like almost at the same time, God threw a switch in my life and said, I want you to prepare for teaching. And so I entered Northwestern with a purpose of getting my PhD to teach in Christian college.
0: So we're going to talk about racism later in the podcast, okay. so I'm glad you brought that up, but I want to set the context in the background uh, for our listeners, because most people probably listen to the podcast know of you if they don't know you personally, but for those who, who don't, uh, there's no person that I can think of on our campus at Cedarville that served with more distinction and for as long as you. How long have you been teaching at Cedarville University?
1: I'm in the middle of my 55th year. I came in the fall of 1965, so the class that just celebrated their 50th anniversary was my freshman class, so to speak. When I was a freshman professor, they were freshman students.
0: Is it offensive to you to hear me say that I was five years old when you joined Cedarville's faculty?
1: (laughs) No, that doesn't offend me at all. It shows the grace of God in giving me longevity and uh, the grace of God in bringing people like you to Cedarville.
0: What motivates you today to continue teaching? Because you could do probably anything you wanted to, but you probably still feel called to teaching.
1: That's the thing. I, I still feel called to teaching. I still love the young people. God's given us some of the finest young people in the universe. I mean, it's just wonderful, the kids that we get to build into their lives and the opportunity to build into their lives. And uh, it's hard to let go of that opportunity. When you I look back on the years I've taught and see college presidents and pastors and missionaries and people that I've had, just a small, small slice of participating in their lives, and it's, it's just a blessing beyond compare.
0: When you decide to retire, whenever that day comes, how do you hope to be remembered?
1: I just pray that I'm remembered as being faithful to the Word of God and faithful to my students and loyal. I, I just want to be faithful to God. That's all. It's all that matters.
0: So in your time at Cedarville, you've worked under, to my knowledge, four presidents.
1: That's correct.
0: Uh, James T. Jeremiah, Dr. Paul Dixon, Dr. Bill Brown, and Dr. Thomas White. How influential have these leaders been on your teaching career and just your
1: life? Well, I think starting with Dr. Jeremiah. Uh, Dr. Jeremiah was very influential in my life. He got me when I was a fresh young professor full of convictions that might not necessarily be practiced at Cedarville. And I remember one incident where in the second faculty meeting of the school year, he asked for questions. And I raised my hand and said, before I came to Cedarville, I read all of your documents. I read the student handbook. I read the faculty handbook. But I've gotten here and heard that there is an unwritten rule that for a white kid to date a black kid requires the permission of all four parents. And I said, that drove me back to reading the rule book again, and I didn't find that rule, and I understand there's an unwritten rule. And he affirmed that that was correct. And then I said, but I have never found a rule in the rule book that says one of our students can't walk off campus and date an unbeliever who's the same race. And that seems incompatible to me because my Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It doesn't say anything about race. And Dr. Jeremiah said, brother, let's talk about it together in my office. And he, has a, he had a gruff presence, and the faculty giggled a little bit. They thought I was going to get a comeuppance. And I'll never forget, he stood and with tears in his eyes. He said to me, brother, you are right. The, your your interpretation of scripture, and your there is nothing in the scripture. But he said we're trying to get this school off the ground, and he said there is so much racism in the in the fundamentalist community that I'm not sure we can do it without this rule. It's expected of us. But he said you stand for what you believe, and I'll be behind you all the way.
0: Mm.
1: And that's why people think I was such a pioneer. Well, I was a pioneer with the president who supported me a hundred percent when it came to racial and ethnic issues
0: sure. but he's not the only president that supported you right
1: no I've that's absolutely true Paul Dixon did the same thing Paul Dixon and I talked about race on several occasions and I remember when uh, many years ago when one of our students a white gal and a black guy went to a camp in Michigan and became more than friends, began to date each other. Mm -hmm. And the next year, the camp rejected his invitation to come back, the black guy's invitation to come back on staff for his social insensitivity or something to that effect, and they accepted the white girl. And the couple came to me. And after I talked with them, I went to Dr. Dixon, and I remember saying, explaining the whole situation. He said, what do you think I should do? I, I remember I said to him, well, I don't face the pressures you face, if it was me, I'd call that camp and tell them they wouldn't come back on campus and recruit students if they didn't take both those kids. And he started to laugh. He said, I don't know why I ask you that. It's pretty obvious what you'd say. But he did it. He called that camp and the they ultimately accepted the guy. And both those kids got to go back to that camp. So those are those are wise decisions and, and I, I thank the Lord for for presidents who are willing to take a stand on things such as that. Under Dr. Dixon's leadership, we started the Martin Luther King Day ce- celebrations and um, commemoratives.
0: Speaking of diversity, when I mention your name to people on campus, one aspect that they they bring up is diversity, that you're really passionate about diversity, you're really passionate about the civil rights movement, and you're really passionate about um, reconciling race relations in Springfield. Um, Why is that so important? Why is that so ingrained into your fabric?
1: Well, I grew up in the period of the civil rights movement. I I was in college. I graduated from high school in 1955, so I am an old buzzard. And uh, graduating in 1955, I was surrounded by a lot of racism. And you know, if you ever have a black friend in that period, you'd go to the shore, and you'd stop at the halfway house between Philadelphia and Atlantic City, and You'd feel him bump your shoulder as you walk toward the restrooms and say, man, mind picking me up a burger and a Coke? I'd mm. say, sure. i never make eye contact with him. you never look. Because you knew and he knew that there was a sign in the window of that place that said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone.
0: Mm.
1: And you knew you could get in. You knew he couldn't because of the color of his skin. When you have those kind of experiences with people, with real people, then that makes you very sensitive to the plight and the, I mean, you take it out of the issue of race and put it in the issue of personalities that you know have a different color to their skin. And uh, the vice president of my undergraduate school espoused the curse of ham theory, wrote about it in the Baptist Bulletin, and uh, drove me very early in my life to examining that theory and what was wrong with it and why it wasn't true. And it's the product of Schofield's reference notes, not mm-hmm. the product of the scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, that drove me into the issue of civil rights. And uh, the thing that amazed me was I was part of the civil rights movement, but had no Christian friends who were part of the civil rights movement. I was standing for the rights of the black person. Why didn't my local church, why didn't the churches in the area, what, what, was, what was the matter with the church? And that was a very powerful influence in my life. The two most powerful influences in my seminary years were worldview and civil rights, the right of black people to be preserved. And that's what brought me to the studies that have today concluded with my position that I believe so firmly in biblical justice rather than social justice because social justice has been broadened out far too far. But biblical justice is real. We're one in Christ, we're one in the church, we're one in the blood of Christ, we're one in the Holy Spirit. All these are seen clearly in the epistles. And uh, Jesus taught civil rights. Jesus taught the right of all people, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That Good Samaritan was a Jewish problem in Jewish territory, but it was the Samaritan, the avowed enemy of the Jew, who had mercy and took part in the salvation or the, this restoration of that Jewish man. The Bible is so clear that I, I, I find it difficult to say anything against civil rights because they're, they're biblical rights. Mm-hmm. They're part of the product of the family of God. At the same time, now that human rights and social justice picture has gone on to include things that are not biblically defensible, and I stand on the Scripture. That's what I love about Cedarville, the inerrancy of Scripture. We stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And that defining picture of standing on the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ says the Bible is true, the Bible is inherent, the Bible is infallible, the Bible is God-breathed or inspired, and the Bible is authoritative in all cases whatsoever, not just theology but social issues and all other issues.
0: So on the civil rights aspect, I suspect you're the pioneer behind our Civil Rights Bus Tour that Cedarville students have been taking for years. Why is that so important, and what takes place on the Civil Rights Bus Tour?
1: Well, um, there was a Civil Rights Bus Tour before I started with it and uh, was not asked to participate in it, and it only happened one year. But the one we started, we started as a class a few years ago. I I believe this is the fifth year for it. And it was started as a course in which, which each student is asked to complete a reading assignment and write a book critique. And then they're asked to keep a journal, a daily journal, which they submit at the end of the trip that tells what effect it has on their life. And what we've tried to accomplish on that civil rights trip is increase the awareness of people, not just students, because you can take this course without credit, too. And uh, we still encourage you to keep a journal. You don't have to do the reading assignment. But we do encourage them to keep a journal. And what we're trying to do is show them the, the biblical position on race. We refute the curse of Ham theory. We go through New Testament texts which show the correct biblical position, and then we visit the sites. And I think one of the one of the things that's most difficult, Civil rights have become conflated into a much more broad thing now than they really originally were and were designed to be. So we visit Memphis where Dr. King was assassinated, and they've turned the Lorraine Motel where he was assassinated into a, a marvelous uh, display of civil rights. And then we go to Birmingham and we go to Kelly Ingram Park where the police dogs were sicked on the children and the fire hoses were used. Visit the Sixteenth Avenue Baptist Church, which is catty corner to the park, and uh, and visit the place where four little black girls were killed, as a as a bomb was exploded in that church. I remember one of my most precious memories of that trip was we had several black people, older black people, and these black people had never seen anything like this. They, and they, I remember they said to me, "Our parents told us don't mess with that stuff. That just gets you in trouble." And so they were experiencing things for the first time in their lives. We went into the 16th Avenue Baptist Church and the students and the older people, and we all joined hands in a circle around the center center section of that and sang, We Shall Overcome. Mm -hmm. And to watch so many of those older black people, tears streaming down their face as they began to realize some of the things that had been sacrificed so that they could have the right to vote, the right to participate in government, and the right to be treated as human beings. Mm because we were very inhumane in our treatment of the Blacks prior to that.
0: How does that bus trip impact our students at Cedarville, or how have you seen it impact our students?
1: If you could read their journals, they call it life-changing. They, they express the fact they never knew, they never understood, they never realized it was that bad. Uh, but I think the thing I see most often is life-changing, and I even see that from some of the adults that go that aren't a part of the college community. As we invite people from the local churches mm-hmm. to join us when we have the space to do so, it's really life changing for them. It's an experience that they never forget. We just received a copy of a letter that was written to one of the leaders of the trip that said, This changed my life forever. I wouldn't be in the position I am now. It's a person in Memphis, Tennessee, a young lady in Memphis, Tennessee, who's in education and ministering to blacks and whites who have handicaps. And so I believe it's a life-changing experience if you're open to it. Uh, I believe it's a convicting experience. It still convicts me as I go. I mean, I was just, we went to the lynching museum in Montgomery, Alabama, for the first time. That sounds like a horrible place. Mm-hmm. And it's overwhelming because they have these, these, lo- these long, square, Frames, bronze and color, uh, but it's a metal that kind of bleeds and fades a little bit. And in its simplicity, they are just suspended from the ceiling, and they have the names of the 11 people in Ohio, for example, who were lynched. Mm. And, then, and some of the states in the South, Mississippi, they go by county. There's too many to put on a sheet. And you see these pillars all through this, through this place, with the thousands of names of blacks who were lynched. Hmm. basically because of the color of their skin. And uh, it's, it's overwhelming. It's a very emotional experience. It's a, a very heartbreaking experience to realize man's inhumanity to man and what the sin nature really can do to you.
0: I know there's a lot of important things that we address as a university. And one for, for the last 10 years that I've been at Cedarville has been diversity. How have you seen diversity improve? at Cedarville uh, during your time here as a university professor?
1: I guess the biggest change I've seen is in the spirit and attitude toward diversity. There was real opposition to diversity when I came here on the part of some of the faculty. I never felt it from the administration. I think that's important to say. Hmm. Dr. Jeremiah, in fact, went to Central State and got a degree at Central State, in master's degree in history. Did he really? Yes. And uh, and Central State was a big part of our of our early years as they helped us with the, um, education degrees when we couldn't certify our own teachers; they were certified through Central State University. Okay, but those were in the early days of the movement. I remember at one point we had a faculty bowling league at Central State. They have bowling alleys in their one of their buildings, and uh, we had a bowling league, and it was in the period of time when. A lot of these issues were very vibrant, and, uh, and we were led out of that university one day at gunpoint. Wow. But it was very dramatic, and uh, yet it, it just shows the racial tensions that were there.
0: Why were you ushered out by gunpoint?
1: Well, what happened was there had been two blacks shot in a bowling alley in, I believe it was South Carolina. Okay. And so they came in to where we were bowling with a cup, asking for donations, and, uh, and they got donations. But they came back later and ruling that we hadn't given enough that we didn't really care about the black people in South Carolina. And uh, our coats disappeared. We found them very quickly and uh, just quietly left to a few chances to see Whitey run and that sort of thing. But, but that was student-driven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was also student-driven when this building was a classroom building.
0: What building are you referred to?
1: Tyler. Tyler, okay. Tyler was a classroom building. The the dining hall was downstairs. The gym was in the back of the building. And across the front of the building were three classrooms. The two on the end seated about a hundred and sixty five each. The one in the middle was forty five to fifty. Okay. And uh after one of my lectures on racial issues, when the classrooms would empty there were be masses of people, you know, roughly 300 plus people in these hallways trying to emerge and get out of the building and head to chapel or head to wherever they had to go. And um, one of the students that had been in my class shouted in the full hall, Murdoch's an N-word lover. Mm. And many of my students were still in the class and uh, they looked horrified. And, they, and I, I just smiled and said, he's right. Mm. I do love black people. That was nothing. The administration could do about that. I didn't. I have no idea who it was. Don't care to know. But that was the milieu. There was a lot of racial tension. There were a lot of racial issues. On the other hand, there were times when, in in uh, my sponsoring of Alpha Chi, we were putting on all school banquets. The school community was small, and we could put on an all school banquet. So, given my interest in history and politics, we had a a school banquet the year George Wallace ran as the third party candidate. And uh we had two of the men of Alpha Chi. Ronald Burt Jazowski was one mm-hmm. of them, and uh John Pereira was the other. And they ran a campaign to be elected to the presidency of Cedar Watt. That time the post office was where the graduate school is now. And we put a we put a stage out there outside the post office, right out in the lawn beside the administration building and uh, the candidates would offer their speeches as mm-hmm. people came out of Alfred auditorium for chapel and over to get their mail. And, uh, the two candidates would make their speeches. And then the week before the election, we introduced a third party candidate who used all of George Wallace's lines. There's not a dime's mm-hmm. worth of difference between them. I'm your real American candidate. And he mm-hmm. said, you got a Pollock and you got an Italian. I'm your real American candidate. <laughs> and it was a black guy. Really? And he swept the election. <laughs> and so there were ways you could get at civil rights in, in a satirical way. And, uh, and, sure. and the campus was very open to that. So I always felt I had administrative support, even though my positions were a little different than many. I also got significant and disturbing hate mail mm-hmm. during those years from students and I know from a few faculty.
0: Mm. So being here 55 years. Obviously you have seen a lot of changes. What are some of the more noteworthy changes that you've have noted?
1: Well, I, I would start with a thing that hasn't changed. There That's you go. Our commitment to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We've always had that we've always sought to have that niche where we were who we were, committed to the scripture and committed to the word of God and, and committed to God Himself. And that hasn't changed. I think one of the big changes that took place when we moved from Alfred Auditorium into what is now Apple Technology Center, Dr. Jeremiah really believed that Cedarville might grow to 1,500 people.
0: He was right.
1: Yeah, and he built a chapel designed for a little over 1,200 people. And I watched that chapel grow, and I watched that chapel, that crowd in that chapel grow, and of course... Before long, we were having satellite chapels in Alfred Auditorium and a science building, and, and we were growing out of that. At the time
0: that he built that 1,200-seat chapel, how big was enrollment, roughly? Boy, I'm
1: not sure. It was probably close to 1,000. But
0: Okay, so it took a little a little yeah. vision yeah. To, to build it larger than who you are. Yes. That's happened since then, hasn't it?
1: Yes, it has. It's happened again and uh, it's about to outgrow the, the chapel now. I, I, I don't know how they're going to handle that because they've opened up all the seats. But uh, the chapel's as big as it can get now. And it's a great place to be with the uh, thousands of kids that are here now.
0: Is there a better time than now to be at Cedarville?
1: I don't think so. I think God has blessed us. I think we had a correction some years ago, and that, that correction was vital uh, I think it spelled the success of the school when some changes were made. And uh, I think it was, a, it was a period that we should all thank God for because it was a period that reminded us how easy it is to lose your commitment to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I think now we're solidly entrenched in the niche that God has designed for us and always has had designed for us. And I think Cedarville is a wonderful place to be now. Dr. White's leadership is outstanding and, and what makes it so outstanding is his complete commitment to our original. We went back to this motto. They were looking for something a little earlier that was a little more fancy, a little more contemporary. Okay. And Dr. White said, let's go back. I remember he asked the faculty, what do you think about the motto? What, what motto should we have? And I remember the day he announced we're going back to our original motto, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I think that said it all. That was the niche where we needed to be. That's where we are committed now, and and by the grace of God, will be till he returns.
0: And as as I look at that decision that you just mentioned, and I see the university in terms of student enrollment growing, I point to that decision as God's blessing because we are standing true, and we're... We're we're not moving away from that. Would you see it the same way? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I think that was the key, the key moment in the in the Cedarville existence. I think we've we've grown so much, in terms of broadening our our base. I I like to call it fundamentalism's Fundamentalist position was a very thou shalt not position, mm-hmm. very strict, narrow. You can maintain a faithful commitment to the Word of God and and relax the dress rules a little bit and make some of those changes that you can make, but you've got to stick to the Word of God. If it's not in the Word of God, you can change it. Right. If it is in the Word of God, you don't touch it. Correct. And that, that's very clear at Cedarville now. And uh, we were losing a little bit of that clarity. And, uh, and God righted the ship for us, and one of the key people in writing the ship, because it all falls to the Board of Trustees. Correct. Right. And Lauren Schornberg, who just had a building named after the business building named after him, was the faithful man of God for the hour and leading our board of trustees to do good decision making.
0: Murray, I want to move us now toward the final few questions. Um, I want to touch on a program that you were part of starting, and that's the EMS program, where we have our own emergency medical system staff. Why did that start, uh, what, 51
1: years ago? Well, the reason it started was uh, I had some men come to me. I was coaching tennis, and I coached tennis because I wanted to have an opportunity to build into some young men's lives. And uh, some guys came to me that were living in uh, West Hall, and they said, we'd like to start a men's organization. And uh, we'd had a literary organization called Alpha Chi, Men for Christ, And they wanted to start that up again. And they asked me to be their advisor. And I said, well, under certain conditions, I'll be your advisor. But I said, you need to know, I don't believe in hazing. I don't believe in anything that is destructive or negative toward the human body or toward people in the general. I don't believe in humiliating people. I believe in the image of God in us and that that's a vital thing. So I said, if you want me to sponsor your organization, the initiation would have to be some kind of Christian service project where anybody, not just the cool people, could uh, could become a part of the association and part of the organization, but they would prove their merit by Christian service projects. And so we began, and Alpha Chi, which means Men for Christ, began to look for projects and... Uh, as in the early days of development, we did things like uh, a banquet for the school. And back in those days, we had all school banquets done by different orgs. And uh, we were looking for projects all the time. So the one of the first projects we desired was to become a fire company. And the administration was less than sympathetic with that because of liability and all those things. So they sold our fire truck. We had a fire truck donated to us. And uh, Ken St. Clair sold that fire truck and gave us the money. And we bought a a hearse as the initial ambulance and began to provide a service, to help people. At the same time, we became a disaster team for American Red Cross. They assigned a van to campus. And so those twin forces were, were sustaining each other during the difficult days when we are trying to gain acceptance because it's a small town and uh, there was a small college at that time. So there was no real need for us to be honest with you. We, and that's what the administration said. We don't really need this. We've got it through the town. But as we grew, the guys persisted. They gave they gave EMT training and they provided training for people on campus. And, and it became a real strong activity of Alpha Chi as it gained more and more uh, respect shall we say on campus uh, after a number of years the school nurse whose name was Betty Birchinger, came to me and said you know we've got a lot of gals that would love to participate in the EMS team but they can't because it's in a men's organization and only men can participate and so we talked it over his leadership team and and turned the team over to Betty so that she could expand it. And, then, and that much of the expansion and acceptance has come since that time. And now, of course, it's an, an integral part of campus.
0: So what does it mean to you when you see the EMS uh, ambulance, the students working in it? What thoughts come through your mind now that it's been so successful for so many years?
1: Well, joy. And I, interestingly, I had a personal experience with it. I was giving an exam one day in Apple and began to tremble uncontrollably. And two students who I was waiting for to finish their test said, are you all right? And I said, I'm not sure I am. And uh, Kim Wade, who was our department administrator at that time, called the squad and I said, "I, I think I better get to the doctor. And she said, no, I've called the squad. You're going to the hospital. I've called the doctor. He's going to meet you there. Wow. And the squad took me and it was four young ladies were in the squad the day they took me to the hospital. I spent six days in intensive care, and uh, I had sepsis. So I had a really close brush with death. In the meantime, my doctor, I, who I've talked to about the gospel on more than one occasion, was uh, getting me all set up, and the girls came in, and they finished, had finished their, their work. They're filling out their reports and getting me into the hospital. And they came and stood around my bed and with my wife and uh, they all stood around my bed and prayed for me. And as they were praying, I heard the door, and my doctor had slipped in. Yeah. Later, he said to me, he said, now, nah, he said, you preach at me a lot. He said, you didn't have near the impact, those girls had. <laughs> <laughs> and seeing them pray for me and seeing their their conscientious care, and it was just, it was a great testimony for the Lord and for for our students as well.
0: Do you know if that doctor has come to know the Lord?
1: No, he hasn't. No, that, to the best of my knowledge, if he has, I don't know it, and I see him regularly. So, Okay.
0: And I'm sure you keep uh, sharing the gospel with him. Amen. There you go. What a great story of, of your vision 51 years ago really actually being used to maybe save your life.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: That, that's great. Um, we only have time for one more question.
1: It's probably okay. the most
0: difficult question that I'm going to ask you. Because especially for you, uh, being on campus for 55 years, I want to know what your greatest memory or most memorable event from your time at Cedarville is. And I don't know how you boil it down to one, but go
1: ahead. That is difficult because it's it's hard to break into one. But I think probably my greatest memory is when Dr. White came to the presidency. I had despaired for the university I loved. I had people ask me why I didn't leave, and I struggled with some of the decisions that were made and some of the things that had happened and some of the things that were said to me by one of the vice presidents. And uh, I, I really despaired for the school, prayed fervently for it. And when Dr. White came and reaffirmed his commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture, to the authority of the Word of God, the infallibility of the word of God. I one day told him, I said, Dr. White, I'm so glad you're here. Now I can die happy. And I meant that with all my heart. I hope you
0: die happy, but I hope it's a few years down the road because it's a pleasure always for me to be in your presence. And Thank you, you are a Cedarville University treasure for no other reason than that you personally, as I see, have stood firm for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Murray, thank you for your ministry, your service, and your friendship. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.